having been saved through the sheer grace of God, we now owe him everything, even our very lives. We offer our whole selves on the altar of God's service, which is our reasonable service. And this is the result of God's powerful, transforming grace in our lives as we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. So that's what we saw last time, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. But then that raises the question, what comes next? Salvation, transformation, what next? Well, as we're going to see in uh, verses 3 through 8 in Romans chapter 12, the next step is for us to see ourselves not just in terms of our relationship with God, but also in terms of our new relationship with God's people, the body of Christ, the church. And that is mainly what Romans chapter 12 is about. So we're not going to look at all of Romans chapter 12 today, but we will be looking at verses 3 through 8 so with that as an introduction, let's read verses 3 through 8, and then we'll unpack it. Romans chapter 12. I guess I'll start back in verse 1 and go down through verse 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith, that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The word of God. So this is our passage for today. And the overall theme is uh, gifts of grace. Um, the more popular way to refer to this subject would be spiritual gifts, but they're not actually called spiritual gifts, or they're called gifts of grace, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But as Paul begins to unfold the subject of gifts of grace, which begins his conversation about our relationship with the church, the body of Christ as believers, he uh, first talks to us about the necessity of sober judgment in verse 3. 
the necessity of sober judgment. Once again in verse 3, for the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So this is one result of the renewed mind that we saw in verse 2. Part of our renewed mind is that we're able to think of ourselves with sober, objective judgment. For one thing, we're able to see ourselves as sinners in need of salvation by grace. But also, we're, we're able to see objectively how God has equipped us as believers to be useful in the body of Christ. But we need objective judgment. We need sober judgment as opposed to the inflated self-esteem that we're naturally prone to. In the, later on in chapter 12, Paul is going to say, um, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Why do you suppose Paul has to tell us in verse 3 um, to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, and in verse 16, to not be haughty, to not be wise in our own sight? Because that's what we're prone to. Because of sin, we idolize ourselves and we do think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Uh, we are arrogant by nature, haughty, and we are wise in our own sight. We don't like someone else telling us what to do. And if you think about it, that pride, that exaggerated self-esteem that's native to us because of sin, that's what our culture celebrates and encourages. So if we would obey Paul here in verse 3, we actually have to swim against the current, against the tide of our culture. There's lots of examples. Um, this week as I was preparing, I read about a study that was done in the early 2000s, I think in 2006. And uh, this study was referred to in the Washington Post in an article dated October 18th, 2006. And here's the headline. For math students, self-esteem might not equal high scores. U.S. lags behind countries that don't emphasize self-regard. So basically in this study, there were students, I think grade school age students, maybe older than that, but school age students uh, from 10 different countries around the world, and they, they were given uh, two tests. One was a psychological assessment to measure self-esteem, and the other one was just a math test. And when these 10 countries were, um, were uh, scored and compared with each other, the students from Korea, South Korea, they scored the lowest 
in self-esteem, but the highest in math. Who do you think, who do you think scored the highest in self-esteem and the lowest among all of the countries studied for math? <laughs> the United States. Self-esteem, self-esteem, you're great, you're wonderful, but you can't do math. To, to me, that's just an example of what um, Paul is instructing us to, to resist. We need to think um, objectively. We, we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We should have sober judgment. But God has granted each one of us a measure of faith, not, not only to be saved, our saving faith is granted to us from God, but also to use our gifts to be useful in the church. That's our calling. And so to hide our gifts, to ignore our gifts, to just not use our gifts is, is not um, an example of humility. And it's certainly not an example of sober judgment it's, it's actually not being faithful to God who's given us gifts for use within the body of Christ. So first of all, there, Paul's setting the stage here for his discussion on gifts of grace by reminding us of the necessity of sober judgment, and that is indeed important. Then in verses 4 and 5, Paul is going to use the metaphor of the human body to illustrate um, the, the nature of the church. And he's doing that because he's trying to get across the usefulness of gifts, the usefulness of gifts in verses 4 and 5. So here's why we should have sober judgment Here's why we should exercise our renewed mind toward God and toward God's people. For in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And I'm sure this is familiar to you, and that's because Paul not only talks about this analogy of the body of Christ here in Romans chapter 12, he does it also in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, in Colossians as well, and also in Ephesians chapter 4. So here's some examples from those passages. This is a favorite analogy of the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Ephesians 4 verses 15 and 16. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow 
so that it, so that it builds itself up in love. And then in Colossians 1.24, uh, Paul talks about his own sufferings and how his sufferings are for the sake of Christ's body that is, he says, the church. So this is one of Paul's favorite analogies to describe the church. It's a body and not just any ordinary body, it's the body of Christ. And just like human bodies have different members different parts that have different functions. So the church has many members and different parts and roles and functions. But, but each one is connected to the whole and contributes to the well-being and growth and health of the whole. That's, that's the idea. This is how um, Paul begins his discussion on gifts of grace or spiritual Gifts. And so our gifts that he's going to discuss are not about us. They're not about our self esteem. They're not about our self fulfillment. But it's all about how we can help the body to be healthy and to grow. That's what he's leading up to. But also, he mentions here the reality that in the body of Christ, there's unity in diversity. We're not all the same. And it's supposed to be that way. The, the kingdom of Christ, uh, the, the church universal is made up from representatives of every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue. Uh, different skin colors, different languages, different heights, different customs, different ways of speaking and dressing, living. Still, when time is rolled up, representatives uh, from every imaginable culture and time in human history will be in heaven worshiping Jesus with the church universal. And so the church itself is an example of unity in diversity, but so is the exercise of spiritual gifts. We don't all have the same gifts. We're not supposed to. And even when we have gifts in common, our gifts will vary in, in strength and focus. But even in the possession and exercise of our spiritual gifts, we demonstrate unity in diversity, which glorifies Jesus, who's the head of the church. And then there's also a profound sense of belonging in the church. Notice how Paul ended verse 5. We are all as individuals members one of another. Just like our individual body parts belong in our bodies and benefit from the parts and roles that the other parts of our bodies fulfill. So each one of us belong in the body of Christ. We belong interconnected and interdependent on one another. 
that's where we belong. This is God's will for us, to belong as members within the body of Christ. Well, that then brings us to point number three, and we're going to spend most of our time here, where Paul gives a list of seven gifts of grace. And now he begins to use the language of gifts of grace. Notice in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So notice in that verse, gifts and grace. Gifts, grace. The, the word gift there is the word charismata. And maybe that sounds familiar to you. That's um, the basis of the word charismatic. And so the idea here is these gifts of grace, these, these charismata, which literally are gifts of grace, undeserved benefits. These are gifts which every single member has to some degree. We, we've all been blessed somehow with um, gifts of grace. And so if you think about it, while this term charismata has been used to define a certain segment of the, the church, really, every church, if it's a biblical church, is a charismatic church in the sense that every church is composed with members who are blessed and equipped and endowed with charismata. Not to put on a show, not to draw attention to ourselves as individuals, but to serve within the body of Christ, to help the body of Christ to be healthy. And so what Paul is going to describe and define are these gifts of grace. But you'll notice what he says at the end of verse 6. Let us use them. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, God's grace is sovereign, and he is sovereign in the endowment of spiritual gifts. But then Paul says, let us use them. That's actually the point of the list that we're going to see. In fact, Douglas Moo, in his commentary on the book of Romans, wrote, Paul is then not just listing gifts. He is exhorting each member of the community to use his or her own gift diligently and faithfully to strengthen the body's unity and help it to flourish. In fact, if you think about it, there's two main verbs in this whole passage. One of them is for us to have sober judgment that we already saw in verse 3. The other main verb or command is right here. Let us use our gifts. 
And so don't let that get lost on you as we're going to go over this list of spiritual gifts. The main point is somehow, in some measure, to some degree, God has endowed you with some sort of gift of grace to help the body of Christ, so therefore, use it or use them. That's what Paul is saying. So here's here's the list now. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And the first gift that he mentions here is the gift of prophecy. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. Prophecy, no matter where you find it in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, it it means speaking on God's behalf, being God's mouthpiece or the, the oracles of God. That's what a prophet is. And prophecy in the Bible included foretelling future events, predicting future events, and forth-telling God's will for the instruction and edification of his people. Both of those aspects, foretelling and forth-telling. Most of the prophecy in the scriptures are forth-telling, not foretelling or predicting the future. Paul says here that New Testament prophets were to prophesy in proportion to our faith. And Paul seems to be including himself as having the gift of prophecy, which makes sense because apostles were organs of revelation from God. That's why we have books in the New Testament that the apostles like Uh, Paul had written, and we consider this letter from the man, Paul, to be the very word of God. In proportion to our faith, he says. In other words, the prophets were to speak to the church all that God had given them to say, no more and no less. Don't add to it, Don't take away from it. And there were prophets in the early church. They ministered during a transitional time when the Bible was under construction. I tried to give you a a chart here here to illustrate this fact. Um, Here we are, obviously, a couple of millennia now after the time of Christ, and we have a complete Bible. We have 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. This is the canon of Scripture. But this did not just drop from heaven to to the earth. Beginning with the Old Testament, we're we're told by the writer of the book of Hebrews that, that God spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets And the language that he uses suggests this step-by-step process of building upon building 
of God's own self-revelation. It's progressive revelation until we had the Old Testament scriptures intact. And then Jesus came onto the scene and what did he do but constantly refer back to the Old Testament scriptures and he had a high regard for them. He, he, he said that uh, we shouldn't think that he came to destroy the law and the prophets, which was shorthand for the Old Testament scriptures. He, he said instead that um, uh, not one jot or tittle will pass from the law until all is fulfilled. And that's why he came, to fulfill the law. But then Jesus went about teaching for three years, a lot. John says that um, if everything that Jesus said and did was written down, then he didn't think that all the books in the world would be able to contain them. And then Jesus uh, called the apostles to be his personal representatives when he would ascend to heaven and he would, he would carry on his mission and even expand it in terms of its scope. Because Jesus was just in the land of Israel, but through the ministry of the apostles, they actually turned the world upside down. And so during this period of the apostolic age, when you have the apostles going around and preaching like Paul did and delivering letters like they did, there were prophets, New Testament prophets, who filled in the gap during this time when there was a completed Old Testament canon, but the New Testament canon was under construction. And then, just as the office of apostle was foundational, so the gift of prophecy, properly speaking, giving revelation from God to the church was foundational in nature. That's why Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 and verse 20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. And what's the result now that we're, we're here? Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 21, that by virtue of the fact that we have the scriptures now in writing, the, the prophetic word in writing, Peter says we have the prophetic word made more sure. And so because we're in possession of this, we have an advantage even over people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' glory, like Peter, and even over people who were privy to the individual ministry of actual prophets. We have the prophetic word made more sure through the uh, prophecy of Scripture. And so this side of the apostolic age, what are we called to do? Not to go around prophesying, but Paul commands Timothy and all uh, pastors and elders, preach the word 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So, prophecy. Next, number two in Paul's list is the gift of service. He says, if service in our serving. If service in our serving. The Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Don't use it to serve yourself. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And of course, when we serve one another, we're walking in Jesus' footsteps. Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be, your, uh, would be first among you must be slave of all. This is Mark 10, verses 44 through 45. And then Jesus continued, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If service in our serving. In fact, serving is so central to the life of the church that one of the enduring offices in the church, and though there's two, the office of elder and the office of deacon. But the office of, of deacon, deacon means servant. To deacon means to serve. And so this enduring office of deacon uh, is there until Jesus comes again to manage the serving that the church is involved in. That's how important it is. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 and following. Then Paul mentions teaching. The one who teaches in his teaching. Teaching is part of the Great Commission. We're supposed to go and make disciples of all the nations. We're supposed to baptize them. But then the part of the Great Commission that I think is often forgotten in evangelicalism today uh, is the second part in which Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So a disciple is a learner. A learner is to be taught. And a disciple is to be taught all that Christ has commanded us. But teachers are accountable for their teaching. That's why James wrote in James 3 and verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so uh, people who are gifted with the gift of teaching should teach, but be careful about what they teach. It needs to be the word of God. And if you think about it, this is so important to us. We're, we're taking it for granted right now. 
Because again, what takes place in preaching? Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, reprove with all patience and teaching. I'm teaching you the word of God. I'm accountable for that. But we're doing the very thing that Paul mentions here, which is interesting, right? Because we just talked about the canon of Scripture. If God gave us his word, why didn't he just say, okay, I gave you your word. Now just go home and read the Bible and memorize the Bible and apply the Bible yourselves. I mean, we should do that ourselves too. Don't get me wrong. But it's interesting, isn't it? That God has given the gift of teaching because this is the will of God. It's not that there's anything insufficient or lacking in God's word. But it was always God's design that he would give his word and he would give teachers to teach it. And so if we're not taking advantage of the teaching ministry of the church, then we're not growing properly from God's word. Maybe we're interpreting something wrong, or this is what usually happens when we're just left to ourselves and we don't plug ourselves in uh, to the, the local church, which is the pillar and buttress of the truth, <coughs> by the way, we, we tend to specialize in the portions of God's word that we like and minimize or avoid those portions that we don't like so much. I know people who spend hours and hours and hours pouring over biblical prophecy, but they don't spend a whole lot of time learning how to be a godly husband or wife or learning how to be humble or whatever. It's just one example. And this also, this gift of teaching, emphasizes... Um, why it's legitimate and important to read good Christian books. What are Christian books? It's the fruit of gifted teachers, both men and women, who write down their teaching so that that can be more widespread and, and enduring. And uh, there are teachers in the church whom I will never meet, either because they're dead now and they're in heaven, or I'm, it's a big world, it's a big kingdom, and I'm just never going to meet them. I'm, I'm probably never going to have benefit of their uh, in-person teaching, but I can read their writings. Think of the Reformers. Think of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I, uh, many people fit in that category. Elizabeth Elliot. Don't neglect, don't minimize or poo-poo the importance of good Christian books from godly, gifted teachers because that is a gift from God. That's a spiritual gift, a gift of his grace. Paul goes on to mention exhortation. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. 
Um, I actually don't really like the word exhort there. Uh, the original word that Paul used is the word parakaleo. And if you uh, listen carefully, uh, para means alongside, and kaleo is a command to, to call. So literally, parakaleo means to, to call to one side or to come alongside of. And usually that word is translated as encourage. So it means to, to aid, to help, to comfort, to encourage, exhort. I think in our modern vernacular sounds like lecture. But that's not what Paul is saying. Exhort, encourage. And the reality is some people have the gift of encouragement. One character like that in the Bible was Barnabas in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 36, we're told that his name, Barnabas, means son of encouragement. And he was given that name by the apostles. So how cool, how blessed that was in the early church, uh, and especially for the apostles like Paul himself, to have this Barnabas, this son of encouragement, exhorting them, comforting them, helping and encouraging them. It's a gift of grace to be an encourager. It doesn't take much grace to criticize, to pick apart, to find fault. But it turns out it takes grace from the God of all grace to comfort, to come alongside of, to encourage. Number five in Paul's list, giving the one who contributes in generosity. In 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7, Paul wrote, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we are to give, we are to contribute generously, not miserly, and cheerfully, not reluctantly. John Wesley put it this way. And this is good guidance. I wish I would have practiced this guidance more consistently in my life. Make as much money as you can. Save as much money as you can. Give as much money as you can. And if you follow that, advice, your life will be blessed financially, but then you will be a blessing to the church. And let me just pause and remark how our church has benefited from this spiritual gift of generous giving, because we've never been a big church. And yet, here we are in a beautiful facility that God has provided through the generosity of our members. You should be commended. Number six, Paul mentions lead leadership. 
The one who leads, he says, with zeal. And zeal there means to work hard, to do one's best, to endeavor. And it reminds me of a verse that the men saw last month, uh, April, during the men's breakfast, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. Do your best, Paul wrote to Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Christian leaders, no matter who you are, no matter in what capacity or function you lead, we should do it with zeal. Not like we're bored, not like we're lazy, not like we don't care, not like we would prefer doing something else. No, with zeal. And then finally, he mentions acts of mercy. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And to do an act of mercy means to show kindness or concern to someone in serious need. And the best example I can think of in the Bible is the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, verses 29 through 37, who allowed himself to be interrupted from his agenda and to help that man who had been robbed and who had been left for dead by religious people. And he provided first aid and brought him to an inn and made sure that he was provided for and checked on his status before he headed on his way. And the idea is, the reason Jesus gave the parable of the Good Samaritan was to illustrate who is our neighbor. But the idea is that um, as God followers, we are called to do acts of mercy, to show kindness or concern to people in serious need. We're not supposed to be headstrong with doctrine, only to have small, hard hearts that aren't moved with compassion at the real needs of real people in the real world. God wants minds filled with biblical doctrine and hearts that are filled with love and compassion for both the lost and the saved, acts of mercy. Well, we'll come back and continue chapter 12 next time, but let me just say that if you're an unbeliever, you've now had a bit of a snapshot into what is important in the mind of God and how you should be directing your life and your gifts and your resources. And it's a way of showing you your sin. The reason why this might sound strange to you is because you've been living for yourself and for the world and the things in the world. And that moving from your way to God's way is what the Bible describes as repentance. And he's now commanding all men everywhere to repentance, including you.
So if that fits you, then may today be the day of your salvation and may you find Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, the one who is gentle and lowly of heart. May you find him to be your Savior and your Lord today and forevermore. Let, let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. We thank you for the gifts that you have given to this church, to us as individuals. We ask for uh, your grace and mercy to enable us to use our gifts faithfully. And Lord, we pray that you would be at work here, causing the body to grow in love, causing each member to do its part for the health and well-being of the whole so that Jesus Christ would be glorified. We pray in his name. Amen.